guys can have a seat. Now, if you know anything about me, you know I like to tell stories, and I got a really good one for you guys tonight. Yeah. I promise it has nothing to do with concrete, okay? I promise. For those of you that were here last time, we'll bring that up later. But um, I was introduced to the drums in 1985. Who remembers 1985? What a good year, right? Yes. Yes. Who doesn't remember 1985, Daniel? <laughs> He gets the brunt of all my stuff these days. But so 1985, that Christmas that year, my brother got this Mattel Synsonic electric drum kit, right? Mattel, the maker in like electric drums. But I remember at like nine years old staring at this box. It was this little black box, a couple uh, pads on there that you could hit, change the notes, you know, change the sounds on this. I remember staring at this thing in like wide-eyed amazement and awe knowing I was never going to be able to play with it because my brother was pretty possessive, right? But like any imaginative kid, what did I do? I went to Pots and Pans. Come on, who's ever played Pots and Pans, right? So I would scour the house, and my parents were hoarders, so we had a lot of Pots and Pans in our house, true story. So I would scour, I would collect this mass of Pots and Pans, sit in my room, and I would just pound away. If I could hit it, tap it, pound it to make music, Man, I would do the best I could with what I got. I was possessed with the drums. So, fast forward a year, I had the opportunity to try out for the school band program. And man, I walked in there with full confidence and like this little swagger, even though swagger wasn't a thing back in 1986. But I walked in with full confidence and I auditioned for the French horn. I promise there's a really good story in there that's a totally different sermon, totally different story. But I didn't make it. I actually failed the test. And you want to talk about scarring a kid. I was told my lips were too big. <laughs> True story. If anyone ever played like a brass instrument, my lips were too big. And I couldn't form the correct embouchure or position to really adequately play that. So having divine wisdom, Mr. Beckman, the band director, gave me the rhythm test, right? It was just this, you know, clap and, you know, back and forth. Needless to say, ever since then, uh, I was accepted into the drumming community and family, and I have loved all things drums and percussion ever since. Um, music, drums, drums, music, uh, it has been such a part of my life, and I know it's making a resurgence, but Walkmans and cassette tapes, right? Anybody remember that? That was the era that was really formidable for my music, um, just my music upbringing. Uh, and it's fun to think back, right, of some of the stuff that we used to listen to real quick. All right, think back to when you were a kid. What were some of the band's artists that you loved? Rush, who said it? Thank you. Yes. Madonna? Yes. We're praying for you later. MC Hammer. MC Hammer. Yeah. Moody Blues, New Kids on the Block. Come on. I know there's something else out there. What, what was that one? Emerson, Lake, and Palmer. ELP. Yeah, there you go. Right? Isn't it fun? That's a good one, too. Oh, my gosh. We could do this all night. We don't have time. We have a lot of announcements today. Super Chick. Who said that? Wow. Wow. Zappa. Zappa. There we go. We'll end on Zappa. So it is amazing, though, how that music that we grew up with when we were kids still has an impact on us today. So I grew up in a musical house. My parents listened to music all the time. My dad loved the oldies. So in the 80s, that meant like music from when he was a kid in the 50s. My mom loved Barbra Streisand and the amazing Barry Manilow. Ah. My brother, my older brother, who is so much older and so much cooler than I, had this off-limits tape drawer in his room. It was a desk, he had this drawer, and it was like, you pull it out, and I kid you not, like lights, it was like, oh. It was this amazing drawer 
of off-limit cassette tapes. Okay, so as a younger brother, anytime my brother left the house, what did I do? Oh, absolutely, man. I ran into his room, I grabbed a cassette, ran back to my room, put it in the dual cassette boombox, right? And then I dubbed it. I copied this tape onto this tape. So I now amassed my brother's tape collection. And his collection was as eclectic as it was vast. So we're talking, okay, we did have like Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, Petra, but then we did have Motley Crue and LL Cool J and Run DMC. We had Striper, we had Foreigner, we had Whiteheart, we had Living Color, and I like just ate it up. I listened to it all. So fast forward, now I'm progressing into high school, listening to all this music, because the internet didn't exist back then, guys. Um, progressing, listening to all this music, and now I'm playing everywhere I can. So jazz combos, dinner theaters, community plays, I don't care. I just wanna like grow in my craft and learn all I can. And you know the funny thing, what do you think the question I got asked the most was? As a drummer, people would say, hey man, who's the best drummer? Who is the best drummer there is? Keith Moon, that's a great answer. Thank you, sir. Who? Uh, we'll get there. You, you'll, you, you're, you're, you're taking away my thunder, man. <laughs> exactly. So again, knowing that this was before the internet, I was not ignorant in my knowledge. Um, I had really good private lesson teachers that were talking to me all the time, and my mom got me a subscription to Modern Drummer Magazine from like 1988 until I think I got married. Um, it's amazing to have people who like support your dreams and, and build into you. That's a totally different sermon for another time. But so armed with the knowledge of modern drummer and my private lesson teachers, I could confidently rattle off a list of some industry standards. Buddy Rich, Neil Peart, Steve Gadd. Here was the problem with this. I was actually lying through my teeth. I had never actually listened to any of those guys drum. They weren't in my brother's tape collection. He didn't have any of those guys. And so here I am walking around like, oh yeah, Buddy Rich, man, that guy is, oh. And I'm selling this thing as if like, and again, I read Modern Drummer, I read all these things, but no joke, it wasn't until like super, super, super late in high school that I actually forced myself to sit down to listen to these guys play, to listen to them drum. And you know what happened? I got to find out for myself what all of these other people already knew and really, respectively, those guys at that time were truly like the best in their craft. Buddy Rich was able to do things back in the 70s drummers still today can't do. Neil Peart was like this amazing mechanical perfectionistic machine. Steve Gadd has probably influenced more drummer by all of the albums he has drummed on than any other single drummer. Here's my point, my very long-winded point. Since I took the time to discover Buddy Rich for myself, Neil Peart, Steve Gadd, all of these guys for myself, no one's ever gonna take that away from me. That knowledge, since I went after that, that knowledge is now buried deep. I have this greater depth, this greater understanding, this greater appreciation of truly what they were able to do. You could say that because I was so immersed in their drumming, I was anchored in the fact that those guys truly were the best. And very similar to that for me was the truth about God's love. See, I was bombarded as a kid with Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. I grew up reciting and regurgitating Jesus loves me without truly understanding. What did that mean? How could that even be? I grew up believing in Jesus without truly understanding the cross or why he suffered. I knew Jesus rose from the dead, but, but I didn't really understand the idea that his death 
was a payment for my sin. It was a complete unknown thing at the time. So then when I, through the work of the Holy Spirit, had this like, ah, come to Jesus moment, that Jesus died in my place, that God's love put Jesus there for me, I began to truly understand the reason for and the depth of God's real love. See, right now we're living in this world undeniably, right, that is swirling with unrest, with fear, with disappointment, with dissatisfaction, with hopelessness, with a, an air of helplessness. And it's easy for us to get swept up into these currents if we're not careful, and they will drag us far away from truth. But, praise God, God offers another way, one that can truly anchor us and keep us solid during the trials and troubles of life. So here we are. We're in the middle of our series, Anchored, where we are looking at anchor points we have while we are here on earth. Last week, Chael talked about the goodness of God. God is good. I hope adults, you truly are like taking notes on this stuff, right? Man, goodness of God. And I hope you guys last week got some time to observe, to proclaim, and truly to experience the goodness of God because he is indeed good. Well, tonight we're going to look at another anchor point, and it's simply this. I am loved. You are loved. Our Heavenly Father tells us over and over and over again through the word how much he loves us. But sometimes, if we're being honest, I know we're in church, but if we're being honest, that becomes noise. It just becomes something we take for granted. That just becomes this assumed. That becomes like this given, like, yes, I know he loves me. Yes, I know he loves me. Yes, I know. And so it gets left in this abstract concept rather than this concrete truth. God's love truly is so permanent that he tells us that he loves us even though the earth will be shaken. Love is a word that we hear everywhere, and I think that adds to and lends to why sometimes we get numb to it. Um, it's the subject of plays, novels, poems, songs. We could probably list a trillion songs that have the word love as its subject. You can't turn on the TV or radio without hearing it. And yet, I don't think that there's a more slippery word in the English language, um, and in my opinion, one of the most misused, right? I mean, I will use it to describe my love for this instrument over here, the drums, equally as much as I'll talk about pizza, or I'll talk about ice cream, or chocolate, or Barry Manilow, or my family, or my friends, or God. So we've got all of these iterations of this word love, and this evening we're going to talk about this genuine love, this godly love. It is a literal come-to-Jesus love. And it all starts with what we read in our text just moments ago. Love comes from God. He actually is love, and he showed us what love is. And this is what I love, God's love. I love kingdom philosophy versus kind of what we know here in the world. Because God's love, this kingdom philosophy of love, it flies in the face of everything that we think we know and even have experienced about love. Because his love is divine. His love is infinite. Our minds are finite. We can't really understand this, right? The world around us has a completely different understanding opposite of the way God defines it. See, many of us, many of people around us, they often confuse love with lust or love with, well, I just really, really like you. I have this affection for you, and I just don't know how to verbalize it. So we just group it in this word called love. God's love seems foolish to most people, they don't get it because they don't truly understand what love is yet. 
And through the Bible, we read that the love of God is deep and it's constant. It's not shallow love that's so common in our culture these days. But this is what I love. The love of God is actually embedded into his character. And there is nothing he can do to contradict himself because he is not a liar. He is motivated by his love for us. And this love is so deep-seated and it reaches deep into our very beings. It's constant and it never changes. That's what I love about the word of God. It says it's the same yesterday, today, forever. There is nothing, absolutely nothing that we can do right now, yesterday, today, tomorrow, whatever, a week from now. There's absolutely nothing we can do to change the depth of his love for us. Say nothing. Look at your neighbor right now and just say nothing. Nothing, right? Nothing. There is nothing that you can do. Nothing you can do yesterday, nothing you can do tomorrow, absolutely nothing. Nothing I could have done an hour before coming into church will change the fact that God loves me. And I think that's really hard for some of us to imagine. I know I still struggle with it many times because the world constantly is reminding us of just the opposite, right? The world tells us and we hear all around that love is and should be conditional. Yet, like the loving and perfect father, that God is, he loves us, and he is working to draw us back into this beautiful relationship with him unconditionally. Despite what we do, in spite of our sinful humanity, his love remains the same. Because really by, by our very nature, we are enemies of God because of sin. That like white elephant in the room, sin. Yet his love for us compelled him to send his only son to make us no longer enemies, but to make us children, his children in his family. All throughout the New Testament, I love it. You can read beautiful passages about how we have been grafted in and adopted into the family of God. So 1 John 4, 8, John gives us the ultimate definition of love. It's simple, it's profound, and it blows the roof off of any definition that would limit the scope and the intensity of his love by saying this, God is love. I don't, I don't think it gets more simple than that. And those three little words ought to be an anchor of hope. Because if those words are true, it makes all the difference in the world. It makes a difference in how you wake up in the morning. It makes a difference in how you talk to your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your spouse, right? But we need to understand this rightly. God is love. That doesn't mean that love is God. In other words, love does not define God. Rather, God is the one who defines love. Again, much of what we call love in modern America bears no resemblance or relationship to real love that we're talking about. So it's important that we jump back into this text and we're going to dig a little deeper into this passage and see what we can pull out in relation to the love of God. 1 John 4 reveals a couple characteristics of God's love, characteristics that are an anchor to solidify the fact that I am loved, that you are loved. Firstly, God's love is an intimate love. John begins this section of scripture by saying, Dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. Here it is, for God is love. I think the, the overriding impressions of these two verses is just 
The love of God is so personal. It's so tailor-made just for each and every one of us. See, God's love causes us to actually, in turn, love him and know him. The theologian A.W. Tozer said, The love of God is one of the great realities of the universe, a pillar upon which the hope of the world rests. But it's a personal, intimate thing, too. And I love this. I, I truly do. God does not love populations. He loves people. God does not love just this nameless masses. He loves men, women, boys, and girls to the point of he knows each, uh, each of their names. It's so intimate. It's so personal. A couple weeks ago, I, I, I spoke on Luke chapter 12, and Jesus kind of is going through this story talking about birds and sparrows. And he asks, you know, what's, what's the price of five sparrows? Two copper coins, right? Two copper coins. Yet, God does not forget a single one of them. So don't be afraid. Why? Because he tells us we're more valuable than the birds, than the sparrows. And in Jesus' day, similar to ours, that little copper coin was like the, the, the lowest denomination in circulation. One such penny, you could buy two sparrows. But for two pennies, you could buy four and you get a fifth free. So that shows you kind of the place that they held for these sparrows. There may be days I know I deal with it. Sometimes I feel like I'm that fifth sparrow. I, I, I'm not really, I'm just kind of the add-on. I'm just thrown in the mix. I don't really have much value. Eh, you got me, you know. It's cheaper than a dime a dozen if you do the math on that thing. But even sparrows matter to him and were more valuable than those sparrows. The Bible says that you are the apple of God's eye. As Augustine puts it, he loves each and every one of us individually as if we were the only living being on earth. Think about that. It's almost like God has blinders and he's looking just at you. He's looking just at you, just at you, just at you. That is the personal, intimate love that he has for each and every one of us in this room. Second, God's love is this proven, objective love. It's true for everyone, always. Period, end of story. We could end right there, but we're not going to. We've heard multiple songs, right, telling us that love is a verb, meaning love has to be put into action. Or other lyrics that say love isn't love until what? Until you give it away. You have to give it away. Real love means being willing to give of yourself and actually give yourself. And God did just that. Again, John goes back. We're going to come to our text quite a bit tonight. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. God proved his love for us through the life and through the death of Jesus. If you ever, ever doubt God's love for you, all you have to do is look to Jesus. Look to the cross and see what God did on your behalf, for your behalf. Paul said it very plainly in Romans chapter 5, verse 8. He says, but God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still unlovable, Christ died for us. While we still didn't deserve this love, Jesus died so we could be loved. Let's look again at verses 9 and 10. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. 
Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. If you notice, I've kind of used some, some different words from some different versions here because I really want you to understand and get this picture of this depth of the love that God has for you sitting in this room. God in his great love and according to his sovereign will and his sovereign purpose determined ahead of time. This was far determined before we even came into the picture. He determined ahead of time to sacrifice his only son so we might live, proving once and for all how much he loves us. You know, it's a really interesting thing to stop and think that God doesn't regret sending Jesus to the cross for us. That's a whole other sermon in and of itself, right? God's love is so personal, it's so intimate, tailor-made for each one of you, respective of where you are at. That is how much he loves you. It's so individual for you. He's such a gentleman like that. God's love is proven by his action. And finally, God's love is a saving love. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love always protects. And that's really what God's love does for us. John announces once again in verse 10, This is real love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. See, Jesus' death on the cross not only proves God's love for us, but it also saves us. Jesus, driven by the limitless love of God, came into this world for this sole reason. To save us, to deliver us, to protect us from sin and from death. In this love, which is shown by sending his son to give us life, God's love comes at a personal cost to himself. But God, again, predetermined he was willing to do what it took to bring that gift of salvation into reality. Again, personalize it for you and for you and for you. It's good to see you, sir. In this love, he first loved us and he sent his son to be a propitiation. That's a big $10 word, right? Propitiation. Something we don't say often, dare I even say never. Never has that come across your lips. Well, it's time for a little Bible school, if you will. In the King James Version of the Bible, 1 John 4.10 reads this way. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's a big word, propitiation. And it's a very important word in the New Testament because it includes six concepts all rolled into one. We've got holiness, wrath, justice, mercy, love, and grace all rolled into this one word called propitiation. See, when Jesus died on the cross, all six of these concepts converged. You see, God's holiness exposes the sinfulness of all sin. God's wrath against sin was poured out onto Jesus on the cross. But God's justice was satisfied at the cross. God's mercy towards sinners was shown at the cross. God's love for the world was demonstrated at the cross. And God's grace was freely given to each and every one of us through the cross. That's propitiation. That's Jesus on our behalf. So through the person and work of Jesus, this propitiation, this saving love, was proven to be once and for all, for all. 
And what's truly remarkable about this love is, again, God moved first. See, God loved us first. And then he came and said, hey, you know what? I know, although you are sinful, I know you are broken, I'm still going to make a way for you to be in my presence. 1 John 4.16 says, we know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. Because again, God is love. God chose us, and he made a way for us to be in his presence through the work of Jesus. And we get to now respond to that work by trusting, by accepting what God did, by proclaiming and confessing that Jesus is Lord and being anchored in the fact that I can stand here today and boldly say, I am loved. I'm wearing a shirt that says Jesus loves this guy, so you know it's got to be true. I am loved. I can stand before you confident knowing the truth of the scriptures. God's love is so vast, so wide. He loves the unlovable. His love is greater than our sin. God loves us not because of who we are and what we've done, but because of who he is and what he did for each and every one of us. And God demonstrates that love towards us. Proof, again, is all throughout the Bible. Back to our text. We're going. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world. There's the anchor for you. Right there. God has substantiated the fact. He has proven the fact that he loves all people by sending his one and only son into the world to live among us and then to willingly choose to go to the cross. And yet there's more. Verse 10, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice. See, God bestowed his undying love on us by sending Jesus to die. I know there's a lot of repetition, a lot of redundancy tonight, but that's okay. Because I want you to hear this. I want you to hear that God loves you so much. See, true love is exactly that. God's love for you and me. God's not playing tricks on us. He's, he's not this like, ha-ha, cosmic killjoy, like waiting to, to mess around with our minds. So why is this still sometimes so difficult for us to accept? Even after hearing it a gazillion times tonight alone, for many of us, it is still hard. I still wrestle with it. I'm being totally honest with you guys up here. We struggle because we live in a world that says we don't deserve it, right? We've done too many bad things. We're not good enough. I don't even know what that means. We've hurt people. We've sinned over and over and over again. And here's the reality. Guess what? We're going to keep sinning and hurting people over and over and over again because we're broken. Because we're lost, right? But through this love of God, he invites us into this relationship with him through his son. God's love is for yesterday, today, and for tomorrow. And a week from now, and a year from now. So for the gazillionth and one time, listen to these words from 1 John 4. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. See, I don't hear God saying, if you do more good, I'll love you. If you stop sinning, I'll love you. If you go to church more, if you help your neighbor more, if you 
give more if you serve. Well, I, I, I don't hear anything of that in these words. And I don't know about you, but for me, that presents a lot of freedom. Yeah. Like that really takes a big weight off of my shoulders. I, I don't have to perform for God's love because God is love and this is what he does. This is yep. who he is. Again, here's that anchor. I am loved, right? It's so simple. It's so profound. Yet, there are theologians today that are still debating this topic. I kid you not. But God loves us because that is who he is. I love uh, one of my favorite authors is Brennan Manning. And he says this, God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be. Because let's be honest, nobody is as they should be. This is a beautiful thing. God's love does not depend on our initiatives or our worthiness. We don't have to clean up our act before we stand before God, before God can love us. We happen to know our dentist really well, and it always amazes me. Uh, one of the things he says is, there are people that will go get their teeth cleaned before they go to the dentist. They will pay out of pocket to go to a different dental office to clean their teeth before they go to their actual appointment because they're embarrassed, because they want this dentist to think like, oh, this guy's got it all together, pearly whites. It blows my mind. But you have people that still feel the same way about the love of God. Oh, you know, I'm going to accept his love when I stop doing X, Y, Z, when I start doing A, B, C. But that's not the case. We don't have to measure up to some standard in order to be lovable. See, God showers his love upon us whether we deserve it or not. And the truth is we don't deserve it, but it's still there. When we open ourselves up to the truth and to the light of God's love, you find that even your deepest, darkest secrets, the ugliest parts of your heart, it's not beyond God's reach. Not at all. Nothing in us is so broken, so filthy, so messed up that God is unwilling or unable to love. God embraces us as we are, loves us as we are, and works with us as we are to get us to that place through Jesus to make us clean and whole and new. There's a great story about um, theologian Karl Barth, a very academic man, very scholarly, very wise. And he was asked uh, by a student, he was giving a, a lecture at the University of Chicago and the student said, what is the essence of the biblical message? And as the story goes, you could literally hear a pin drop in the room because everybody just kind of like leans forward. Because again, here is this like oh, amazingly wise, academically scholar, like Bible scholar. And after like this, the most awkward seven minutes as the story goes, Carl uh, Barth just slowly steps up and says, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible told me so. Amen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 3:16. I do not presume to know where your heart as where your heart is at tonight. Only God can fully know that. And maybe tonight, man, I was speaking to the anchored and this was just a really good reminder. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to re-anchor into some of that knowledge. Man, really get it in there. Re-anchor yourself, solidified in the fact that you are loved. 
But maybe you are here and you have not felt anchored in that love. Maybe you don't fully understand yet the depth and the breadth and the vastness of the love that God has for you individually for you. Either way, because of Jesus, through Jesus, you can receive God's love and let the love of God saturate your heart. You can be anchored in knowing that Jesus loves you and that you truly are loved. Last week, all last week, I was in the city of Chicago for this huge national radio leader summit. And the vice president of broadcasting for Moody Radio challenged us one day. He says every morning when he wakes up, he begins the day preaching the gospel to himself. Now, here's a man of God that's been doing ministry for many years. But again, I don't presume to know where he's at. But he said in order for him to live the gospel out, he must begin by preaching it in. And that really hit me, right? In order to live out the love of God, he needed first to be anchored in the love of God. And so for him and for us, preaching the gospel to ourselves is a pretty amazing spiritual discipline. And I was thinking about it, it's both proactive and it's reactive. Right? It's reactive as we encounter temptations, we encounter frustrations, and we seek to anchor ourselves in the fact that, okay, I'm about to get frustrated. Nope, I'm loved, I'm loved, I receive the love. So you can anchor yourself in that moment, or you can even reflect back, boy, man, I really messed up here. Boy, I shouldn't have. So you can reflect through the gospel lens, knowing that you are anchored. But again, it's also proactive, right? It goes on this offense when we anchor our souls in this kind of daily, regular rhythm, before our days begin, we now go on the offensive. We're preparing ourselves. We're waking up saying, all right, bring it. I'm loved. I can do this. I am loved. I know something might not happen. I'm loved. Doesn't matter. I'm loved. Turn on the TV. I'm loved. Turn off the TV. I'm loved. Doesn't matter. When you begin that whole rhythm, that regular rhythm, Right In your daily love to wake up and say, man, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. You can remind your heart that you are anchored in and that you are loved by God. In like literally three seconds, man, I'm just going to take some time. I'm going to pray over us. And wherever you are at tonight, again, in your heart, I don't presume to know. But wherever you are at, whether you are anchored, you need to be be re-anchored. You just need to find that anchor. I would just invite you to join me in prayer in your seats in your heart. Father God, I thank you, truly thankful for your unconditional love. Lord, your love is so great that you did not even withhold your one and only son for our sake. But Lord, as we saw in your word, the truth tonight, that you freely gave him up to suffer and die for each one of us individually, by name. So Lord, I know it's weird, but thank you for delivering Jesus up as a sacrifice, that we might be anchored in your love. Lord, too, I praise you as your word says that nothing will separate us from that love. Lord, we are anchored, I am anchored, and I declare that I am loved. Right now in your seat, just declare that you are loved. 
proclaim it. You are loved, loved with an everlasting love. Oh, Father, we rejoice because, again, we are anchored in the name of Jesus, and we can stand with confidence saying, I am loved. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, we love you. God loves you. And if we can pray for you, please allow us to, to do so. If, again, maybe that was a, a first time you've even gotten to that point in prayer, we'd love to know that. Maybe this was a re-anchoring. We'd love to know that. Maybe you just need to pray about something else. We would love to do that as well. So before you leave this room, man, I encourage you, share with someone, share with us. We'd love to pray alongside of you because we'd love to serve you and just walk. Well, thank you again for letting me share my heart with you guys. I look forward to seeing you guys next week or at the food pantry on Tuesday or prayer in the morning at 6 a.m. Adults, make sure you go through the fives. And now you got two verses out of 1 John. Love you guys. Have a good night.